You are now listening to the May 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace. We will listen to a praise song and begin our program with Christianese 101. Yeah. 
Hello, everyone. This is Grace, your host for your Christianese 101 program. Today, you will be learning about the tax collectors who appear in the Bible from time to time. Did you know that Matthew, Jesus' disciple, and Zacchaeus, who climbed the sycamore tree to see Jesus, were both tax collectors? During Jesus' time, tax collectors were looked down upon by the people of Israel. But why was that? If you search the term tax collector in the dictionary, it says someone who collects unpaid taxes and manages them. When Jesus was on earth, Jews lived under and were oppressed by the Roman Empire. At that time, to collect taxes from the Jews, the Roman government put Jews in the tax office. The tax collectors were given special authority which allowed them to collect taxes at a higher rate than required by the Roman government. If they were to give a certain amount to Rome, the tax collectors were allowed to collect more than the amount and keep it for themselves. So they worked hard to collect taxes from their own people and for this reason a lot of people resented the tax collectors. Tax collectors were divided into two subgroups, Gabi and Mokes. Gabi collected regular dues and Mokes collected taxes from customers or tolls. Compared to Gabi tax collectors, Mokes inflicted a much greater hardship when collecting their taxes from people and according to scholars, Matthew was a Mokes before he followed Jesus. Whether a person was a Gabi or Mokes, they were criticized for their corrupt ways to increase their wealth while leaving their brothers to suffer. Also, it was considered the worst job any man can do for in their greed, they even traveled with the Gentiles to different regions to collect more taxes. Because of that, they were described as corrupt according to the law and marked as traitors since they were acting as servants of the Roman Empire. So in Jewish society, tax collectors were treated the same as sinners, prostitutes, and pagans. But in order for the tax collectors to be accepted back into the Jewish society again, they had to go through a strict conversion that is, conditions of repentance that had to be fulfilled. Not only did they have to give up their positions, but they had to return one-fifth of the profits they collected. Because of this, many thought it was impossible to seek the salvation of God. However, we see that Jesus hung out with the tax collectors in the Bible. Jesus also ate with them and visited the houses of both Zacchaeus, the head of the tax collectors, and Matthew, whom he even called as an apostle and made him a disciple. Because Jesus spent some time with tax collectors, people called him a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Why did Jesus approach sinners? Is it because he is a sinner like them? Absolutely not. When the scribes of the Pharisees asked Jesus why he was eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, Jesus answered them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 Jesus came to save the sinners. Through His grace, 
you and I, who are like the tax collectors, have come to salvation. This ends our discussion about tax collectors for today. I look forward to meeting with you again next week. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniel. Today we are continuing our conversation on relational withdrawal. This is something that we do after we look and act out with pornography. This is lesson two of three. Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered why you don't have many friends? Maybe you don't have any friends, like any really, really good friendships. It certainly is something we're thinking about. And and maybe you're a spouse of someone dealing with pornography and and wondering, like, yeah, why, why doesn't he? Why doesn't she have at least one really good friend? I had someone tell me, uh, a couple months back, he said, you know, my wife told me to to go call a friend and go play golf because she just wanted me out of the house. And it occurred to me that I, I didn't know who to call because I didn't have any real friends. They're all just acquaintances. They're all just casual surface level colleagues. And how sad and how pathetic that is as a 55 year old man. Well, today we're going to discuss that topic head on as we continue our series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. Now, the sex spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where I am inside this habit, inside this bondage or addiction to pornography. And make no doubt about it, porn is a series of predictable habits that we've created for ourselves. The bad news is that we don't realize it. The good news, however, is that as you listen, as you review, and as you start applying this material to your life, you will, by God's grace, man, you're going to break free from the bondage of of porn. So in today's podcast, we're going to learn three things. Number one, how it's impossible to have good relationships when we withdraw from others. Number two, why it's important to understand that repentance is not just something we do with God. And number three, what happens when we think that we've repented, that we're doing all the right steps, but in reality, we haven't. We're just playing the same old game. Well, let's get started with today's lesson. This is why I don't have good relationships. So true repentance can always be determined by my willingness to face those affected by my sin. If you haven't made things right, then that's something to take to the Lord this week. If there are people in your life, if there's something, if you're married in here and you've got something to confess, there's something that you need to tell her, tell your children, whatever, um, seek the Lord's face in that. But we don't want to, right? Because once we've acted out once again... The act of my sin in combination with my shame is now convincing me that I don't like me. 
So once we act out in sin, we add our shame, and then it goes back to my shame story. Remember our shame stories? There's four of them. You got the strong person, the weak person, the wounded person, and the godly person, right? So the strong person says, well, I'm the strong person, so you're the problem, right? And because you're the problem, you're the very reason that I do what I do. That's the strong person. The weak person says, well, I am the person. I, I, am, I am the problem. The weak person says, how can I not do this again? This is my life. I'm weak. And if I'm weak, I don't like myself. And if I don't like myself, well, then I don't like you either. Right? The wounded person says, well, I'm the result of what's been done to me. I'm the result. This is always going to happen to me. And because God is ultimately in control... I don't like him, and I don't like you because these things aren't happening to you. At least we don't think so. It's amazing how judgmental we are, right? So you got the strong person, the weak person, the wounded person, and now the godly person. The godly person says, my holiness and my worthiness is now based on how much I sin or don't sin. That's a bad deal right there, that my godliness is based on what I do, on how much I sin or don't sin. You're saved by grace, fellas. God loves you on your worst day. The godly person says, well, if I love Jesus, why can't I stop doing this? The godly person says, well, I should be able to control this, but I can't. So I'm going to hide because other people think that I'm godly. I'm going to go to a men's Bible study and I'm going to get some great lessons, but every time I leave, I feel alone because no one's sharing what's, what they're really going through, right? And by the way, as you guys move into men's ministries in your church and stuff, if you're the first one to go, you know what, I've got a problem with this, watch what happens. Just watch what happens. It takes one guy. You've heard me say this a million times. One man, one godly man will change your life forever. You can be that man taking this stuff to your church and go, yeah, yep, lust's a big deal for me. And watch what happens. You don't need, that's all you have to say. So when I act out and I withdraw because I don't like you and I don't like me and I don't like God, it's impossible, right? It's impossible to have good relationships when we withdraw. So relational withdrawal causes me to want to move away. And think about this. This is really important to understand. This is an internal insight. If I move away, shame is now an internal dynamic. I may be present in the relationship, which is an external relationship, but I'm absent in terms of feelings and in terms of my attitudes. So I'm shut down, I'm numb, I'm angry, I've got my mask on, and I'm faking it. How you doing? Fine. Great. Everything's great. But man, we just kid ourselves, don't we? The charade only works for so long. The facade only carries on for so long. And here's the thing. Your family and your friends know something's wrong. They may not know what it is, but they know something's wrong. So they feel our absence even though we're present, but they can't get into our shame. They can't get into our mind they can't get into our thoughts. They can't go there. It's interesting to me that we now have medical scientists and, and all these people that can tell us how the brain works. They can tell us all the, all the, 
how much dopamine, how much adrenaline, how much oxytocin, how much vasopressin, and how it floods the, the VTA and, and the pleasure center of the brain, and all those medical terms, right? They tell us all that. But they still can't tell us what we're thinking. They still can't tell us what's on our mind. They can tell us how the brain functions, but not. That's why the Apostle Paul says, renew your mind, right? So how do we remedy this situation with, with, uh, with isolation, with relational withdrawal? Turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. So He says, even now, even now that you've done this again, even now, return to me, fasting and weeping and mourning. It's this idea of, Lord, I am, I'm going to surrender as best as I know how. We talk a lot about surrender, and I don't want to give the false impression like this is a one-and-done type thing. Surrender is certainly not. (laughs) It's surrendering over and over and over. Last couple months, I found myself surrendering a part of my life going, I thought I surrendered that yesterday. Why am I taking it back? Why do I have to give it back to you? But that's the process. It's a daily surrender like, oh, I, I said I was going to give that to you, but I'm taking it back. I, I feel myself doing that. Here you go again. So it's an incremental type thing. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. How many times have you heard this? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. You can write down Luke 13, 5. It's the same, the same thing. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. I don't think there's a day that goes by to where at some level we don't need to repent of something. You know what I mean? I'm always repenting for something. I'm always saying I'm sorry for something. I had a great prayer time this morning, just this morning. Kiss Amy goodbye, pray for her, and I'm, I'm getting ready and I'm shaving. And when I'm getting ready, I, I've got a podcast going on usually. And, and she calls me and I'm immediately irritated because I'm in my routine. And I want to be bugged. And she literally, so, you know, I got shaving cream all over my face. I got the phone right there. So I answered and I hit speaker and I said, hey, babe. Hey, can I bug you for a second? Yes? Yeah. Can I get you to do me a favor? Yeah, babe, what is it? Oh, I caught myself. I was like, oh, that's not good. Uh, But did I say I'm sorry right then and there? Oh, no. Hey, I forgot my pills. Can you... uh, Can you bring them over to me? I'm so sorry. Yeah, 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 I can do that. And my tone was just so unbelievably inconsiderate. 
So a half hour later, I go drop off her stuff. I say that I'm sorry. But why didn't I do it right then and there? Because I was being bugged, right? I've always got something to repent of, right? It's this constant purging in your life. You know, when you read the scriptures and, and God talks about the refining fire, when you're getting pressed in and this testing that happens, you know, when, when a goldsmith makes gold, it's not that they just crank up the heat as hot as it gets. It has to be a certain temperature. So you can have a mediocre goldsmith with the right temperature or uh, someone who's very, very experienced in the wrong temperature, and you're not going to get pure gold because the dross has to come up and you got to get the, the impurity out of the gold, right? The temperature has to be just right. And I find that amazing, like, oh, Lord, it's getting a little warm in here. You guys ever feel that? You can turn down the heat any time now, right? Wait a second, I just went through that. I can't handle two things going on at one time. I can't multitask, you know that. But it's this constant purging in my life. And obviously, this isn't just sexual sin stuff, man. This is just life. Repentance is to change one's way of life. As the result of a complete change of thought and attitude, with regard to sin and righteousness. And, and we tend to focus in on the sorrow that a person experiences because of sin. But see, repentance seems to be more specifically about total change. Not just the sorrow, but total change, both in thought and behavior. And repentance changes the way that we think. And when we think differently, that's when we start to act differently. That's when our behavior changes, and it starts with our mind. Romans 12.2, the Apostle Paul writes, Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then, then you're going to learn to know God's will for you, which is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. I also like the message version of this passage of, of Romans 12 too. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, your ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life and place it before God, place it before him as an offering, embracing what God does for you. That's the best thing you can do. That's the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops a well-formed maturity in you. Being changed from the inside out starts with starting small and walking slow. And the, the starting small aspect of establishing a, a purity plan is very practical. Step number one to this thing is to install a filtering software program on all of your digital devices, your phones, your laptops, your tablets, all that stuff. You know, let's say you've got a 16-year-old son who just got his driver's license. Now, would you go out and buy him a brand new Corvette that, <laughs> that has a 650 
horsepower engine? How about a, a Ducati superbike without a helmet? Would you do that? Some of you might, but, but most of us would say, well, of course not, right? He doesn't know how to drive. He can't handle that much power. Well, that's what happens with our digital devices. We, we all have the power of the internet, but with very little restraint or self-control, we learn how to use the internet for evil rather than good. So we need some type of help. We need a filtering software program to help us with that. If we don't, we're going to crash and we're going to burn every single time. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, you're invited to our weekly community group. It's a grace group, and it's for men and women, husbands, wives, together, single, divorced. It doesn't matter. You are welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We are in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter, at Purity Pastor, and you can email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk, it's living in God's power. That power is the very name, it's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, my friend. I love you, and I look forward to our time.
carry my sins far away. Rising, He justified, freely forever. One day He's coming on glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Great Expectations based on Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 through 11. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I want to ask you a very serious question and, um, you know, kind of puts us on the same page. And what has been the greatest disappointment in your life? And I was kind of stripping gears now to, you know, to go thinking about something like that. But what has been the greatest disappointment in your life? Maybe, you know, the very serious, it was that your father passed away before he could see your child or before... He could be at your wedding, or it could be that your marriage dissolved, or a missed opportunity. It could be, you know, why didn't I take that job? Or why did I leave this when I I should have stayed? You know, there's all of these kinds of regrets. Uh, Maybe it was when you opened the potato chip bag and found it half empty. I don't know. You know, (laughs) there's regrets in life. But for the most part, we feel disappointed when our expectations are not met. 2,000 years ago, thousands of people were very disappointed, but you'd never think so as you begin to read the incident recorded in Matthew chapter 21. So I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. We'll just start with the first verse. Now... When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. End quote. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, 
who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, what's happening here sounds anything but disappointing, right? The crowd appears to love Jesus. They see him as a savior, and I'm going to say with a little s, not a capital S. They see him as a savior in the sense that he is someone who will save them from Roman occupation. Yet in less than a week, this exuberant crowd shouting Hosanna will join their voices with others and shout crucify him. And to really understand what's going on, we've got to get into the mind and the desperation of people in the first century of these Jewish people. We celebrate Palm Sunday with Christian eyes. They were not Christians, all right? They didn't understand what we do. We celebrate Palm Sunday, and it actually is, in a way, a little bit of a tragedy. As Matthew 21 begins, the Passover is starting, and the crowds have gathered from all over the world to come to Jerusalem. We're told that Jerusalem's population tripled at that time. There were over a million people in Jerusalem in the environs, camped around the city and all. And all the, the people were hoping that God would give them a better life, that that would happen pretty soon. For years, they'd been living under Roman occupation, and before that, even Greek occupation, going back to the time of the uh, Maccabees, about 135 years before Jesus was born. And they were just constantly trying to be a free people again and have their own independent state, which never did happen until recent time, modern times. They had unfair governors. There was injustice. The taxes were exorbitant. It was not a nice time to live. Uh, in fact, this governor Pilate that they had, he didn't like being there. He had been involved in a plot against Caesar, and his punishment, fortunately, wasn't killed. He was sent to the armpit of the realm, and that was the desert area of Palestine to this rebellious city of Jerusalem. Common people, though, wanted a, they wanted a savior. They wanted a savior king. And they had part of this crowd had followed Jesus a lot in Galilee, where most of his ministry took place. Most of his ministry did not happen in Jerusalem. It was in the Galilee up north. And they had seen him heal people. They had seen him, I mean, they'd seen him cast out demons. One time they saw him feed over 5,000 people. They can count children and women, so it could have been 20,000 people fed them with one little boy's lunch. And they're thinking, my land, this is fantastic. We've got a king who can lead an army, who can heal, no need for the Red Cross, you know what I'm saying? He can heal the sick. Oh, and by the way, he raised the dead. That never hurts to have somebody like that in your army, right? And then on top of that, the other thing that he can do is, I mean, he can feed us. We don't even need a supply line, you know? You know, bringing food to the troops. We got him. We've got Jesus. Who is he? Jesus of Nazareth. And many in the crowd had witnessed some of the miracles that he did. And those who hadn't had heard from them. And so this excited crowd was waiting for his entrance into Jerusalem. But... 
Their expectations were not going to be met this Passover week. The people wanted a Jewish king who would lead an army to fight the Romans and establish a new Jewish kingdom. Matthew 21 here, look at verse 8 again. It says, the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus. Okay, I've heard that for years. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient times, this would be something that you would do. There's one example in the Old Testament where they would take their outer garments off, their coat off. They would lay it in front of the king. And the modern equivalent, and maybe this is where it came from, would be like rolling out the red carpet. Okay, so this was the red carpet greeting. Here is a carpet for you, Lord, for you to come on, for you to walk into our city. The red carpet treatment. It also says that others, you read on in that same verse, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John said they took branches of palm trees and went out before him. So they Apostle John in his gospel gives us a little bit more detail. They took branches of palm trees. What is that all about? Well, during this time in uh, Israel, and I said like about 100 years before, the palm branch became a national emblem. It was the emblem of the state of Israel. In fact, it had been struck on coins. And it was, as you see here, there would be a coin And it was a symbol of striving for Jewish independence. This same symbol you can see on one of the coins about 135 years after Jesus, there was a man by the last name of Bar Kokhba who started the third Jewish revolt that lasted only a few years. And this is one of the Bar Kokhba coins. You see the seven-branched palm You see the three-date fruit, that's the land of fruits, you know, the profitable land. And then on the back you see the bunches of grapes. And in the Hebrew it says, for the freedom of Jerusalem. In fact, I decided I'd wear mine. Two great friends of my guides gave me one. It's better than that one. (laughs) Really nice. And on the one side it's a palm, on the back it says, for the freedom of Jerusalem. And so this was like when Jesus is coming and they're waving palms, it's like a parade and you waving an American flag, all right? So they're waving these palms, they're shouting Hosanna. By the way, Hosanna, it means save us now, save us now, say it, save us now, say Hosanna, Hosanna. It's a political statement for them. I mean, we're looking back and we're saying, oh, wow, look, they're receiving Jesus as their Lord. It's a political rally for most of them. Hosanna, Hosanna, give the king a welcome. And then the other thing I've been thinking about is why all this talk about a donkey? I mean, good grief. I mean, you look at it. Chapter 21, yes, thank you. And look at the first verses. I mean, about a donkey, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven verses about a donkey. That's interesting. What is all this donkey talk? Well, you know, when a king was entering into 
a city like they wanted Jesus to enter into it as a victorious, as a conquering king. Come in to conquer, to deliver, to set free. The king would always ride a white war horse. Jesus, rather than doing that, is riding a donkey. And for us, a donkey, you know, is kind of a demeaning thing. It wasn't in those days. Kings would ride donkeys when they were coming in peace. It was a humble thing. Zechariah 9.9 says, Behold, your king has come to you humble, riding on a donkey. This king is a humble king. Earlier in, in chapter 20, you'll, as Jesus is on his way, he is asked a question by the sons of Zebedee's mother. And we're seeing that neither by his words or, as we've just seen, by his actions, does he ever uh, claim to be the kind of king that's coming to start a war and set people free. It says in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one at your left in your kingdom. Jewish mother. She'd be the only one to ask something that bold, right? Mom. Well, you know that's where you want to be. Mom. Stop. And, and it's clear that Jesus, that was not what he had in mind for his kingdom. Look at verse 25. He says, he called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles... This is the kings, the governors. They lorded over the, the others, you know. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So he's saying, you know, you know kingdoms and power and all of that. He said, and it is a very strong way he says it in Greek, it is like a father rebuking a child. Not so you, is what Jesus says. I mean, it is not so you. He's very emphatic there. It shall not be so among you. Whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even the Son of Man, this is clincher, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not what people expected at all. They wanted Jesus to come as a king. He says, no, uh, I came to give my life. I came to die. What? See, this is setting the people up for huge disappointment because Jesus is not going to live up to their expectations. Ironically, most of this same crowd shouting Hosanna now in less than five days will be shouting, crucify him. Look at Matthew chapter 27, actually. And this is exactly what happens. Verse 15. Now, at the feast, Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner who they wanted. So this was kind of a thing, you know, there's someone on death row or something and you want him freed, I'll do that for you once a year. So, verse 16 says, And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, 
whom do you want me to release for you? And this was a no-brainer. Barabbas, who was a terrorist, I mean, really, he was a murderer. He was a terrorist. Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This, Pilate said, no-brainer? Of course they're going to pick Jesus. For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. He knew the religious leaders had delivered Jesus up because they didn't like the power he had over the people. They didn't like his message. He wasn't going along with them. And they had decided much earlier that they were going to look for a way to kill him. Besides, verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, and this is her message, have nothing to do with that righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. God warned her, if you do this, I believe, well, I can't say what would happen to him, but you have a fair idea that God was warning him that his, his eternal life was probably in jeopardy. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You know, when people's expectations are not met, they can be led to do things they would never, ever do. These people hated the religious leaders. They did not like them because they abused them. There was spiritual abuse going on. They put burdens on them they couldn't handle. They weren't popular. But the people's expectations, Jesus isn't doing what they thought he would do, and so they get mad at Jesus The people who don't like Jesus are now able to influence them more. Their enemies are able to influence them. See, that's what happens when you're disappointed with God. Satan comes along and he begins to influence you to think that God has done something bad. And you begin to think, well, man, maybe I should just choose this other thing instead of Jesus. And so they bring out Barabbas and, and he says, who do you want to have released? And, and, I mean, they have said Barabbas. So they bring Barabbas out. And the governor said to them, which of the two, verse 21, do you want? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, what evil has he done? Why? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Can I take a little rabbit trail? Here's my rabbit trail. Can you imagine being Barabbas, a man who is in jail, he belongs there, he's been sentenced to die in one of the worst ways you could ever be executed and by crucifixion. He's ready for the nails to be in his wrist, he's ready for the nails to be through his ankles. He's ready to, it's horrific death, ultimately to have his legs broken so he can just die of asphyxiation. He's ready, that's going to happen. The terror, never knowing when they were gonna bring him out. All of a sudden the soldiers are coming down to maximum security prison, they're in the dungeon. They're dragging him up, they're not being gentle with him. They bring him out before the crowd, and the crowd is jeering. The crowd is making noise. They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and he thinks they're calling for him to be crucified. Instead, he's told, you're free. This man, 
has taken your place. What a picture. There are actually two sons of the Father there. Barabbas means son of the Father. Jesus was the Son of God. You see, Jesus took his place. What a story right there, right? That'd preach. Somebody ought to do that sometime. But you know, what a transaction happened right there. What a shock. Salvation. I don't deserve it, right? That's an amazing thing. But their disappointment, the people's disappointment, came from unmet expectation. Disappointment can cause people to lose hope, and, and it can cause people to act irrationally and lead them to do violent things, things they wouldn't normally do. They're not thinking straight. And unmet expectations is what caused that Palm Sunday crowd that was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to now shout, crucify him. Jesus didn't meet their expectations because he had his own agenda. They weren't setting his agenda. They were misunderstanding what was going on. They were misunderstanding his plan. And I just want to say, guys, as we begin now to really apply this, that God has his own agenda for your life, and it may not fit how you think it should go. Don't expect God or others to behave the way you want. It's unrealistic, and it will never happen. Don't expect people or God to act the way you want. It's not going to happen. What do you mean? God will disappoint you. Did I just hear that in church? It's not God's problem. It's yours. Because your expectations are not realistic. Remember, I said disappointment happens when our expectations are not met. And when our expectations about what we think God should do are not met, we get disappointed with God. That can lead to anger. It can lead to depression. It can lead to anxiety. It can lead to hopelessness. You know, these kinds of things happen. And I don't know a Christian who's never been angry at God. And if you say you haven't, okay, I have. On multiple times. And you know what? God can handle it. Just like a little child can stomp their feet and, you know, and scream. And, you know, some little kids, ours never did, but they say, I hate you. Maybe your kids did that. And you're like, you little punk, you're three. I got decades on you. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Go take your nap, you know. Uh, it's like, you don't even know what hate means, you know. It's a word you heard. It's the worst thing you can think of, you know, as a little kid. And you can stop your little feet and, and shake your fists at God and hate him. And God, again, you little punk. <laughs> Go take your nap. I love you. When you wake up, you'll love me. The thing is, God does not always meet our expectations. And when he doesn't meet our expectations, we become angry with him. Now, that's immature. 
and we're growing up, and as we grow up, we see from hindsight that we can trust God a lot better, don't we? And so in this one thing, I trusted God, and then as, as later I realized, well, I, if I could trust him for that, I can now trust him for this, and our faith grows in the Lord, but you will never know all of God's plan. God just does not roll it out in front of us. Jesus had his own agenda. He didn't meet their expectations because he had an agenda of his own. And why didn't Jesus meet their expectations? Well, the same reasons that he sometimes doesn't meet our expectations. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, it's because he has something better in store for us. I want to say that just a couple more times because it's just not a point that I'm flying over. This is the core. When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, it's because he has something better in store. Let me say it just one more time. And those of you who have checked out are by now, when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, it's because he has something, what? Better in store. Some of you are like, this is just lobbing into your heart. I was just putting it right in your heart because it's a word from the Lord for you right now. He has something better. You know, earthly kingdoms come and go, but Jesus didn't come to advance any personal kingdom. He came to advance the kingdom of God. Jesus had something so much bigger in mind. The path he chose resulted in salvation for the world. The path he chose resulted in not just some people being saved for a few years under a new regime, you know, better life. Instead, his plan was that now people will be led not out of the oppression of the Romans, but out of the oppression of the devil, and people will be given eternal life or given, be given the potential for eternal life and be saved from eternal hell. Now, that was his plan. They didn't clue in on it, but Jesus would not be diverted from that plan. I want you to know, Jesus has a plan for your life. It might not be what you're expecting right now. It might not feel good, taste good, look right. But his plan is good. And when you get to heaven and you look back someday, you will not be critical. You won't be saying, why did you do that? You'll be bad. Sit him down. He's like, whoa, dude. I mean that with, you know, holy way. That was awesome. You knew what you were doing. And God is going to go, really? Yes. I know what I'm doing. I know it's easy to say this. I know this is easy to listen to when you're not going through a lot of stuff. I understand that. But when you are going through it, you've got to remember when God isn't working with my expectations, you know, and my expectations fall through, it's because he's got a better plan. I have to live in faith. Faith is not knowing the whole plan. That's not living by faith. The just shall live by faith. And so we have to live 
I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what the next page is. I don't know what the next episode is going to be. God, you know, like a, a great TV show, you know, on the miniseries or whatever, they leave you hanging. And so, you know, I binge watch because I want to know what's happening in the next time. And it's written to keep, to keep you on the edge of your seat. God's plan for your life is written that way in many ways. And we're like, what? It's a page turner. God's plan is better than the plans you can have for your own life. I just want to come up and say, trust him. Just trust him. You'll get through it with his help. You will get through it. You will not be in heaven saying, you didn't do that right, God. If Jesus met the expectations of the Jerusalem crowds, they would have been stuck in sin and headed for hell forever. You would be lost and going to hell. You would not have salvation. There would be no hope for us at all if Jesus had done what people expected him to do. Jesus saves us from hell. He reconciles us to God. We can live in his eternal kingdom forever. That's a lot better. Amen than having our capital in Jerusalem and a king on the throne. Jesus says, no, I reign, and I reign forever. So, the personal stuff you take away. I'm sure already, you know, the big point you've got. Let's for sure make sure that we take away this point, that when God does not meet your expectation. Know that it's because he has something better in store. Or I'm going to put it this way, and you can say it more personally, when God doesn't meet my expectation, it's because I can be sure he has something better in store. Now you've got to live like you believe that. I know you do. But your anxious heart, your anxious mind is trying to steal that assurance from you. Hang on to the truth. I want us to trust that God's plans for us are best and his plans for us are better than we could ever come up for ourselves. And I believe that that is... You know, a realistic look at Palm Sunday. I realize that it is a very real message to take away from something that's a very common, joyous celebration yearly for us. Let's pray. Lord, there are times when it appears to us or the reality is you're not meeting what... We expect you to do. We may have felt let down, abandoned, uh, lonely. Uh, maybe we're stressing over decisions that we've made and not sure if we did the right thing. Lord, there's so many thousand things that can disturb our peace. But we can be sure that your plans for us are good. You don't plan calamity for us. You don't have plans where you want 
there to be something happens to us that would destroy us or our faith. You would never do that. We want to leave here laying our anxiety down, casting our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. There is nothing that could ever happen to us that you don't know. You know the very number of the hairs on our head. If you can watch a little bird falling and know that bird fell and have pity on that, how much more compassion do you have for us, your children, for whom Jesus died? So, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, peace. For those who are storm-tossed right now, peace upon them, Lord. The peace that passes understanding. And where we may be struggling and we're in that crowd and part of us wants to say, Hosanna to what's happening. And yet the other part of us is disappointed. Lord, bring us now to the point where we are able to say just one more time, when you don't meet our expectations, we know that it's because you have something better in store for us. We trust you for that as your people, as your church, as individual Christians. And we are asking these things and praising these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.
how great Thou art, how great Thou art. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in that on a cross my burdens gladly bearing he bled and died to take away my sin then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. And when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart Then I shall bow In humble adoration And there proclaim My God, how great Thou art Then sings my soul My Savior God to Thee How great Thou art how great Thou art Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee How great Thou art How great Thou art How great Thou art How great This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.